Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome aboard the Arachno ship Zero G, spider science fiction, Celli Serata fantasy and Tetra Pulmonata radio for episode number 1446. It was the best of times, it was the multiverse of times. I'm Rob Jan, spidering along today solo as our co-host Megan McHugh is on shore leave. Our podcast title is Animated Arthropod, yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, today we'll be chatting about the eagerly awaited, newly hatched in cinemas Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the stunning sequel to the equally amazing 2018 animated feature Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I spider-sense a trend there. Both are thwipping yarns and are well-deserved successes for Sony Pictures, which can still make Spider-Verse-related movies, having held the film rights to the popular Marvel Comics characters since the late 1990s. There's a sidebar there. As you probably know, Tom Holland's Spider-Man is able to cross over into the Marvel Cinematic Universe proper, thanks to a deal cut between Marvel slash Disney and Sony. And FYI, Marvel and several artists who have worked with the comic book publisher in the past have recently come to a settlement about character creation rights. Although, as I note this, I do believe a settlement with the estate of writer Steve Ditko, co-creator of Spider-Man and other Marvel characters, is reportedly still unresolved, which means that, hypothetically speaking, it would be possible for both Marvel and Sony to lose rights to the iconic Spider-ish characters if they successfully reverted to the artist's family. In my humble opinion, I think that's unlikely, given that other settlements have already been reached for other characters. By the way, somewhat confusingly, Marvel slash Disney has the right to use Spider-Folk in animated television series, so long as the format is under around 44 minutes, which explains those what-if series appearances. Ah, enough said. Where the Don heck was I? Oh yeah. Spider-Man. Also going to have a Wanda, not that Wanda, although, I don't know, she has got a habit of smashing through the multiverse planes. Now, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is a multiversal movie. Since the whole multiverse thingy is a bit flavour of the year, perhaps even of the decade, I'll have a little bit of a walk through. It's a consequence of alternate-slash-alternative-worlds fiction, often referred to as counterfactuals in the trade. Well, it's a hypothetical alteration in real or imagined history can produce a ripple effect through the timeline so that events are quite altered in the future. Alternate realities have been quite a popular pursuit in fiction, often revolving around particular hinge points in history, such as World War II or the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, it's often battle-orientated, 
And the idea is, you know, what if Napoleon had won the Battle of Waterloo or the Nazis had beaten the Allies in World War II? And by the way, this almost inevitably leads to stories about policing said altered timelines, organisations devoted to try and keeping it straight from their point of view. So if someone causes some kind of alteration, then there's a, a counterforce opposed to that will try and set things to rights. As in the works of writers Larry Niven or Paul Anderson or Isaac Asimov, amongst many others. And this kind of runs parallel, by the way, to the pastiche universe, where authors like Alan Moore or Philip Jose Farmer or Kim Newman or filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino kind of conflate variously sourced fictional characters to create a metafictional universe. Yes, it's all related. <laughs> it's also used a lot in cinema and television um, for all sorts of purposes. Star Trek rebooted itself in an alternate universe, the J.J. Abrams films. Ironically, they realised they didn't have to do that at all because of course they have Star Trek Enterprise and Discovery and Strange New Worlds set before the original Star Trek series continuity but just going with the flow of it being in the style of that show but having noticeably different technology now because it's being filmed in the future of Star Trek and they have new actors playing the roles of Kirk, Spock and so on. Doctor Who of course can do it quite easily with its inbuilt wibbly-wobbly across space-time adventures anyway. Of course, this also incorporates the actor's favourite of mirror universes, where we can have the same actor playing naughty versions of themselves, or nice, as the case may be, looking at you, Red Dwarf. <laughs> so, of course, that brings us to last year's Oscar-winning machine, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which kind of mainstreamed it all. Now, in comic books, Marvel and DC have both had a lot of fun with what-if universes and popular alternative riffs on their main characters and side characters too. And this is also a consequence of long-term publishing houses running through various iterations of characters. For example, from World War II, you know, you've got Captain America and Superman and Batman from that era, and now they've got to be updated as they go over the years, and that's kind of caused all sorts of complications. DC tried to simplify all that in the mid-80s by having the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover series, and so that actually led to a, a whole trilogy of that, the Infinite Crisis in, in the middle of the 2000s and the Final Crisis later on in that decade, and of course that's also had echoes in the Arrowverse on television where they've had Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow and Batwoman having crossovers between those. And even the new Flash movie has that too. <laughs> Complications. Of course, Marvel has had its own crossover events where they've had the multiverses collide. Uh, taking an inspiration from the 1980s event Secret Wars, there was the 2015 to 2016 crossover event, again, which was titled Secret Wars, and that resulted in them sort of munging together everything on a place called Battle World. The ultimate conclusion of that resulting in several of the assorted characters from across the multiverse of alternate realities transferring to Marvel Comics' main universe, Earth-616. For example, Miles Morales, the Latino African-American, Spider-Man, is now a permanent part, or at least until they reboot it, of the main 
Marvel comic universe. Of course, we've seen this spill over again into the Marvel movies from the Marvel Studios, that is. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was very much into that. Um, they've also brought over some X-Men characters in that from the 20th Century Fox arm. In the What If cartoon series, they had Spider-Man. And of course, there was the Spider-Man No Way Home movie, a Sony one. We've got the Loki TV series with its own time variance authority policing those alternate realities and leading into it very much so with the Kang Dynasty saga, which is now sort of rolling out, having come into being during the Loki TV series. Talk about crossing over the media multiverse from animated series to television show through mainstream movies and across different studios too. Very complicated. But, you know, it all makes sense if you're following it. If not, what are you doing here? <laughs> okay, who can understand the wonder and the mystery of it all? And that brings us to the animated movie, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Talked about David Bowie's connection to spiders, Marvel Comics and Spider-Man before. Uh, Heteropoda David Bowie is a species of huntsman spider that can be found in the Cameron Highlands district of Malaysia and its coloration is reminiscent of the kind of face paint palette that Bowie used in his early career particularly for Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars he appeared in Marvel Comics and has been the inspiration for characters and his songs have been pen dropped in the comics and needled into the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well most notably in the Guardians movies where of course the team's latest spaceship is christened the Bowie. In the comics, Venom has sung Let's Dance as he dispatches victims, while Nick Fury and Spider-Man rocketed into space listening to Starman. The cover of a Captain Marvel comic featured Carol Danvers with her Ziggy Stardust tribute Star Force insignia across her face, like the iconic maker. And in the book Hellfire Gala, Spider-Man advanced the theory in a one-sided conversation with Doctor Doom that David Bowie was a mutant a theory which Doom later mused might have some truth in it. This year's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is the sequel to the 2018 smash hit animated feature Into the Spider-Verse, which won Best Animated Feature Awards at both the Golden Globes and the Oscars, but more importantly was highly acclaimed by both critics and audience alike and really paved the way for multiverse projects across the film and TV industry. The sequel was pretty much a given, though it was delayed by the pandemic, like, well, pretty much all of our particular parallel dimension. And by the way, this film is really the second part of an almost obligatory Spider trilogy, so don't be too surprised when you see a to-be-continued title card at the end of this entry. Well, that's kind of a spoiler, but, you know, it's also a cushion. <laughs> part three, Beyond the Spider-Verse, is slated to release in early 2024, and there are also potential spin-off projects, including a feature focusing upon the various Spider-Women. The first film was directed by Bob Perchetti, Peter Ramsey and Rodney Rothman from a screenplay by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman. The second one is directed by Joachim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson from a screenplay again written by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller and David Callahan. Joachim is a Portuguese-American animator and director and writer known for directing TV shows like Justice League Unlimited, Avatar The Last Airbender, G.I. Joe Resolute, Voltron Legendary Defender, and The Legend of Korra. 
Kemp Powers is a playwright who we also know for co-directing the very, very cool animated feature Soul and for scripting episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Justin K. Thompson was the production designer on the first film and the excellent Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and now steps up into the co-director slot for this new film. Now, we know that writing partners Phil Lord and Christopher Miller also wrote and directed Meatballs as well as the animated sitcom Clone High and the brick-breakingly fast-paced Lego movie as well as the two live-action 21 Jump Street films. They were also producers on the Last Man on Earth teleseries, and many of these projects we've favourably reviewed on Zero-G. Now, the third writer on Across the Spider-Verse is David Callahan, who has worked on the films Doom, rather controversially on The Expendables, and the 2014 Godzilla movie, as well as having credits from Ant-Man, Wonder Woman 1984, Shang-Chi, and The Legend of the Ten Rings, and the upcoming Masters of the Universe movie. So yeah, some very animation, spider-savvy, and superhero-smart creatives behind this new film. Now, the first film was inspired by several Marvel comic book arcs, including the Ultimate Comic Book Universe, the Amazing Spider-Man Spider-Verse stories, the death of Spider-Man, and the Miles Morales debut Spider-Men. In company with spider-beings from across the multiverse in the first film, Miles had to save reality from the nefarious crime lord Kingpin, as well as negotiating his own life as a teenage crime fighter, and his newfound friendship with all sorts of spider-beings from across that multiverse. Oh, and this movie picks up something over a year after the events of the first one. The first film had the Spider-Peeps dropping in on Miles Morales' Spider-Man. This one has him returning the visit, and then some with way more verses, and a setup not dissimilar to the Time Variance Authority seen in the Loki TV series, as he and his old and new posse battle to stop a new villain from disrupting the multiverse. Simples, eh? Well, you know, not quite. <laughs> so, to the characters. This is basically Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy's film, serving as the emotional hinge for the plot. They also have their own problems with their own families, and that sort of dovetails together as well in the film. Shamik Moore reprises his voice acting role as Miles Morales from the first film, and he's evolved it a bit more as Miles is trying to chart his path into the future. For example, will he go to Princeton University, taking advantage of the considerable smarts that we sometimes neglect to remember that Spider-Man actually possesses, or Peter Parker as well. So Shamik plays the role in a very convincing, footloose and fancy-free sort of style. He's trying to break out of the constraints of his life, which has been considerably expanded and enhanced by his exposure to friends from across the multiverse, as well as the knowledge that there exists of a Spider-Peep. Miles is the Spider-Man of earth 1610, and he has to interact with Gwen Stacy, who is the spider woman of Earth 65. As I said before, she is having problems with her own family as well, as being a wanted criminal. So, in spite of being a member of a band, 
as we heard near the start of the show, Gwen Stacy has been having a pretty terrible time, as will be revealed and thoroughly explored in this movie. Oh, she seems to have the power of rock and rolling when it comes to fighting, which I find quite fascinating. Dance fight! Hayley Steinfeld voices Gwen Stacy slash Spider-Woman, and of course you know that Hayley was the choice for Kate Bishop in the Hawkeye series, so she's pulling a couple of double duties there in the MCU, as it were. Uh, of course, as we know, Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy don't necessarily end well in several multiverses in the Marvel continuum. Will this one be any different? Uh, well, you'll have to see the film to find out. All right, so we also have Brian Tyree Henry playing Miles' father and Luna Velez playing Rio, his mother bringing in the intersection of African-American and Puerto Rico culture into the hothouse of Brooklyn. They are, of course, quite concerned about the direction that Miles is taking, especially since they don't actually know that he's Spider-Man. <laughs> ah, so the theme is that family is blood, and that includes radioactive blood family amongst the Spider-folk. But before we get to them, I just wanted to talk about The Spot, who is a new villain for this movie, played by Jason Schwartzman, who's a Wes Anderson movie regular. So we've got the usual sort of backstory for him being a former scientist, and he's been turned into a supervillain who can open interdimensional portals. And this places in peril, once again, the entire multiverse. So we know this actor as well because he is the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola as well as being the cousin of actor Nicolas Cage and Sofia Coppola. So quite fascinating backstory there for The Spot. He's actually played quite well by Schwartzman. We feel like he's a, a kind of a wannabe super villain. But, you know, he's just sort of muscling up into the territory that will pit him in opposition to our spider beings. Amongst the posse, the spider people, we've got Jake Johnson reprising his voice role as Peter B. Parker. We've seen Johnson before in Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet, and heard him in the Lego movie in 21 Jump Street. So a bit of a touchstone for the writing team of this new movie. So Peter B. Parker is kind of a more shop-worn Spider-Man from Earth 616 and a little bit like uh, Peter Parker, but seen a lot of things in his time. He's not in as good a shape as he could have been either. But he brings a new dimension to this now. He has had a daughter with Mary Jane Watson, a child called Mayday, who functions a little bit like the child in The Incredibles. Uh, but nevertheless, he's a, a great character in here and provides a lot of the, well, <laughs> intentionally amusing, folkloric and family sort of based paternal wisdom in this story a good little performance from jake johnson there another spider person appearing is is a ray as jessica drew spider woman we've heard her before in bojack horseman where she played dr indara now she is also in the family way in this story which doesn't stop her from riding a motorcycle and booming around the place We've also got Karen Sony playing Pavita 
Prabhaka, which is to say Spider-Man India. And we know this actor quite well because we saw him playing Dopinda in the films Deadpool and Deadpool 2 and number 3 as well. He was the taxi driver in that. A great character role for Karan Sony. So he actually inhabits uh, what they call Mumbatan, which is an alternate universe comprised of sort of like Mumbai and Manhattan. So he actually has his powers via magic instead of the radioactive spider bite. Well, let's riff off Spider-Man India. Look, we're at the inevitable part where we talk about the characters and the actors who play them on Zero-G. So let's continue Spider-Rabbiting on. So Daniel Kaluuya plays Hobie Brown slash Spider-Punk. And we heard him, well, actually we saw him first in uh, Doctor Who in the episode Planet of the Dead. And of course he was one of the stars of Jordan Peele's horror movie Get Out, played the character of Chris Washington. He has also appeared in Peele's Nope as Otis O.J. Haywood. So uh, really an act to watch out for there. He's also in the uh, Black Panther movie from 2018, playing the character of Wahabi. And he really inhabits the idea of a punk rocker in the Spider-Verse in this, providing some more of the rebellious aspect which we'd like to see perhaps Miles jump into in this. But of course, Miles is the main character. We can't be too far rebellious. So we get sort of like the interesting idea of having Miles's character, or I should say the Spider character, fractured into hundreds of different aspects of the character, which allows them to all inform his main character and instruct him as well. Speaking of which, Oscar Isaac is Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099, as we heard in the earlier track we played. He is one of those guys who, well, he's a, a do-gooder who does things and tells you that it's for your own good. But the good of the many outweighs the good of the one at times. So, you know, he means well, and so many roads to hell have been paved with that. He is from the year 2099. And of course, Oscar Isaac is well known to us as Moon Knight and perhaps lesser known as Apocalypse in that X-Men movie that wasn't all that good. But Oscar Isaac was fine, even though buried under a ton of makeup. Look, as well as these main characters, there are literally hundreds of cameos from uh, Lego to the Spider-Man video games to live-action Spider-Actors as well, but I won't spoil too many of those. In fact, I'll talk about none of them. It would take me all day to get into those. Suffice to say that all of these characters are expertly and skillfully munged together in the story by the very multiversal nature of it. And as I said, I think they inform Miles Morales' character in their own different way as they feed into it. And Gwen Stacy too. She has a lot of interaction with these characters. And we do have some pop-ups from the cast of the first Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse movie too. Although I don't think Nicolas Cage is in there comprising Spider-Man noir. Well, it's said that an animated film or television series can cleave closer to the spirit of a comic book source. Eisner don't know how universal an idea that is, because... Well, the live-action movies have often done it pretty well, too. But then again, animation. It's drawings, isn't it? Well, 
not in the basically just animating a printed page used, for example, in the old 1960s Marvel series like Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Submariner or the Avengers, or even the Hulk. Though they did have their precursor charms with particularly <laughs> delightful and singable main title themes. And there's the more polished modern sense of what they have now dubbed motion comics, you know, Spider-Woman, Agent of Sword, or Iron Man Extremis, or even the Inhumans one, where they've taken a great deal more care and attention to basically bringing a comic book straight to a televisual medium. Still, it's a thing, and it does feel like animation is the natural medium for comic book adaptations. It's spot on here, if I can take the name of a villain from the movie, as the riot of artistic styles paralleling the musical melange are skillfully blended together while retaining their ability to surprise and delight. For example, they use zip tones, or zipper tones as they used to call them back in the 1930s. A bit of dead technology there though. Uh, patterns of dots for shading uh, put onto a transparent medium and then rubbed on with a pencil or stylus so that they adhere to the artwork. Uh, often you had to cut out the Letraset or Letratone and stick it onto the artwork while you're actually doing it, being careful not to cut through the paper. You can do this all now in the digital electronic realm. It's kind of a retro thing because back in the day it was used in comic books and newspaper photography to, uh, to be very print friendly. And it was a feature of comic book art from various eras. Here it's deployed gleefully across the whole film with that nostalgic effect. They take full advantage of the multiverse themes too. One of the alternative Earths is Earth 50101, which is nicknamed Mumbatan, as we said before with that track. Mumbai and Manhattan are sort of blended together. Uh, it's all based on the uh, Gotham Entertainment Group's Spider-Man India comic book series. There are some Lego scenes where everything is indeed awesome as the song goes, and they're very faithful to their multiversal theme in that, for example, one character from a Renaissance Earth is rendered in parchment on the screen. There's great use of black and white too in a noir tradition, and there's also the fact that you can look at this film in terms of its fight scenes, which is always an amazing thing in an animated movie. They're hyperkinetically fluid. They're beyond stouches, just like in a musical or a dance movie where you have to use the motion to inform the emotion of the characters. It's just as important as their dialogue or their singing. Uh, the spiders inhabit the 3D space in the movie, and boy, I'd love to have seen this one in 3D as well. It's poetry in motion. There's a stairwell ascent scene that is just as thrilling as any of the corridor fights beloved of Marvel television and cinema, even though they're not actually fighting anyone in it. In order to give the character Pavita Prabhaka in terms of uh, a special martial arts style, they reference the 2,000-year-old Indian martial art, Kalari Payatu, and that's a great thing to see on screen. Uh, Spider-Gwen has a sort of rock-and-roll fight aesthetic, which is very percussive, like, well, the drummer that she is in the movie, a lot of thumping and acrobatics. In, in repose, too, it's not all about movement. For example, there's a sense of real weight to the characters. I wish that uh, you could see this now, but, you know, you'd have to go and look on a trailer or something like that. Visually, Zero-G is a radio show. But, for example, when the characters are leaning on a railing on a rooftop, it's 
got real kind of a sense of them being there. Uh, there's rippling clear plastic on a roof structure. It looks like waves on water. There are some moments that are genuinely Miyazaki feeling. Studio Ghibli great. They're so reflectively calm as anything that they've so lovingly wrought in those masterpieces of that studio. Well, you know, in terms of the whole thing. If you haven't figured out now that I love this film, <laughs> you are sadly misinformed, and maybe I'm to blame for that. In any case, I think that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and its first film in the trilogy and the film that's coming out next year, I think that they're basically jewels in the crown of the art of animation, and you know, in future when you write your lists of 100 great animated films. You're going to have to find a spot for these. They're that good. Could they have done them better? Well, I suppose they could have made Miles a bit more rebellious, but then that's what they had Gwen Stacy for in this one. She's actually the bad girl character in this for a variety of reasons. Uh, but, you know, a lot of those are quite complicated and I can't go into them now at this stage. So, if I were to give it a... 0G rating, you know, in the realm of yeah, nah, maybe. I think we're going to have to go with our original pun that I deployed earlier in the show and just call it a thwipping yarn after the sound of Spider-Man's iconic web shooters. I look forward to the one that's coming out early next year. I hope they don't postpone it. The second film had quite a few stops and starts because of the pandemic and other reasons, but, you know, it's here now in the cinemas. I did see it in a, a multiplex. I'm quite happy to have done so. I tried to see it on as large a screen as possible and did so. And I do not regret a second of the two-hour running time, which is quite substantial for an animated film. You know, you really know you're in for a treat when you're sitting down and none of it drags. Unlike me, spider-rabbiting on today on Zero G about the film. I think uh, probably in future shows we're going to have a look at the Australian noir feminist comedy, which is to say Deadlock, and if you want to go and check that out, it's streaming now. Uh, is it on Amazon Prime? I'm guessing so, just off the top of my head, but you know, you never know. My notes may be more accurate than my remembrance. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our wanderings through Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse today. A splendid film that webbed deserved a special look on the show. So that's a wrap for today. Thanks to our friendly neighbourhoods, Spider-Men, women, children, ducks, dinosaurs, minifigs and cats. Thanks to the listeners, or is it just one multiplied to the infinite power across the multiverse. Thank you, Multiverse Megan. And thanks to Repeated Rob. <laughs> now there's some variants that the TVA should scrub from the timelines. Until next week, in the words of Uncle Ben, or depending on the film trilogy, Aunt Mayhap, with zero-G power comes zero-G responsibility. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.